0: We left off in um, Romans chapter 10. We only really got into the third verse and we had to quit because we finished nine and then just sort of marched right into the third verse. So let's begin at verse one and just read up to verse three and we'll, we'll try to make it down to verse 13 tonight. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. To be called ignorant, nobody likes that. That's a word that is demeaning to us. It may be a matter of fact. We may be ignorant about a subject, but we don't like to hear the word or have it apply to our lives, that we are ignorant. And yet, that is the very case with so many people concerning God, and especially concerning God's righteousness. Somebody once said that man is incurably addicted to working for his own salvation. And I think that's true. As I have observed people and asked them about their relationship with God... They often try to give me some reason that God should love them and that they should be in heaven. Something they've done. Something they've signed up to do. Some place they belong. They've worked hard for it. They've been good. They deserve heaven. And that's simple ignorance. I grew up in a religious home and I kept the ceremonies and the rituals. And by and large, though I went to church and knew about God, knew that he had a son, that he was born of a virgin, that he died on the cross, I was in spiritual ignorance. As, by the way, was Paul the Apostle, the writer of Romans, at one time in his life. He was Jewish. He was a rabbi. He came from that cloth. And so he knew what it was like to be blinded. Not only spiritually, but also, as you remember, physically, as he was knocked off his horse on the way to Damascus. And he couldn't see for three days, sort of showing him that physically he was experiencing what he had experienced spiritually all of his life, a spiritual blindness. Grew up in the Jewish faith. In fact, this man was so ignorant of who Jesus Christ was that he persecuted the church, he said. And he said, I did it in ignorance. He confessed that later on. The land of Israel, I've been there now 22 times. I lived there, my first jaunt over there on a kibbutz. I've grown to love the people, as I mentioned last week. We talked about their zeal in the first couple of verses. But i got to say, in general terms, that Jewish people are among the smartest people group I have ever encountered. Just, I'm painting with a broom on purpose. They just seem to be brilliant. And I say that not only from what I've observed, but from what I've seen statistically. Um, The Jewish people make up one-tenth of one percent of world population, and yet they have 25 to 33 percent of all of the Nobel Prizes ever won. That's saying something. Not only that... But they hold 30% of all the awards in music and science and literature. Brilliant. As an example, the Wasserman test for syphilis. Digitalis was discovered by a Jewish doctor by the name of Dr. Nusslin. Chlorohydrate for convulsions was discovered by Dr. Liefreich. Streptomycin, discovered by another Jewish doctor, Dr. Abraham Waxman. The polio pill by Dr. Sabin, the polio vaccine by the famous Jonas Salk. And yet with all of that brain power, all of those smarts, there is a pervasive ignorance among this chosen people of God over what it requires to know God to get to heaven. Verse 3 is where we left off and we continue tonight on that theme. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Knowing truth is essential. We need to know the truth about God. We need to know the truth about ourselves. We need to know the truth about our world. We place a high premium on truth John, when he wrote his gospel, spoke about Jesus coming into the world and he said, And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's the man who came, the Messiah who came, the one of truth. Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, because if you do that, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then he declared himself to be the very source of truth when he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus promised his disciples, anybody who follows Jesus, would know the truth. He said, the spirit of truth will come and he will lead you into all truth. The promise to the believer of the Holy Spirit abiding within as he follows Jesus Christ. And then when Jesus prayed to His Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, for us, by the way, His followers, including us, He said, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now, there has never been a nation that existed that was more focused on truth than the nation of Israel. They have sought the truth since their inception. And especially since the truth, the Bible, was committed to them. In a sense, they have an edge, you would think. They've got the Old Testament. They've got the predictions, the promises. If you'd look back at um, chapter 9 for just a moment. He talks about his heart cry for the Jews, but a reminder of their their heritage. Verse 4, "...who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God." and the promises. It's amazing how committed the Jews are to the truth, in so much as they will train their children from a very early age to memorize whole sections of the Old Testament Scriptures. At their mother's knee, at their father's desk, they're taught the Word of God. It's a premium to them. It's paramount to them. And so Paul could write to young Timothy and said, "'From childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures.'" Truth was deposited into the hearts of young Jewish children. And not only that, but the Jewish nation and the city of Jerusalem so honored the teachers of the truth, like Rabbi Hallel and Rabbi Gamaliel, who taught Paul the Apostle truth. They honored them. They brought people from all over the world to sit at the feet of these great teachers. The ironic thing is this. Having the deposit of the Word of God, the truth of the Old Testament, the predictive prophecy of the Messiah, all of the promises, for being people who were so committed to the truth, the ironic thing is they missed it. Jesus said to the Sadducees, You err, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. The prophet Hosea said, My people, through God said it through the prophet, My people wander or err. They err because of lack of knowledge. They perish is one translation. My people perish for lack of knowledge. The book of Isaiah opens up and it says, The donkey knows his master's call and the master's crib. But Israel, my people, does not know. They do not understand. That's amazing to me. Having the deposited truth of God having it all, and yet being so ignorant of the truth of God. Now, this is one of the major themes of this section of the book of Romans. You know, Paul has a style here, we've noticed. Paul will figure that somebody's going to ask him a question, and so he'll raise the question. And then it's like he says, Hey, I'm glad you asked that, even though they didn't. He supposes they would. And then he answers the supposed question. So he has this kind of dialogue with himself. He asks himself a question, and he gives himself a great answer. And one of the questions is, Paul, if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, like you say, why isn't it that the nation of Israel has wholesale rejected him? Why isn't it that more Jews don't believe in him? Okay, you believe in him, great. But if he's the promised Messiah, it seems that there's a lot more Gentiles than Jews that believe in him. And so Paul says, you're right, there's a remnant. There's always been just a remnant who's believed, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Then he'll go on to say in the next chapter, God still has a plan for this nation in the future. We'll get to that later. But the ignorance part. Ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, notice, they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. What is that? What is the righteousness of God? Do you remember? The righteousness of God, you'll remember, is the righteousness... You don't earn, you don't produce, you don't work for, you receive. The only righteousness God will accept is the kind of righteousness He gives freely to people. It's the kind that we receive by faith, completely by grace, not by works. That's the righteousness of God as we've defined it so far in the book of Romans. And this is why, folks, the religious person has real trouble with the grace of Jesus Christ. Because the religious person, including Paul the Apostle at one time, had a whole system worked out. A whole system of works, ceremonies, rituals, laws. And they worked hard and they strived daily to perform their little standard of righteousness. And then when it was all done, that they fulfilled their standard, they felt good about it. Which is what the religious person loves to do. Not to receive God's free gift, but to say, I worked hard for it. I deserve heaven. I've been to church all my life. I grew up and I've had communion and confirmation or whatever. My parents belong to this church. I belong to this church. But the righteousness of God is the kind that He gives. I do like to work outside. In fact, uh, this last Sunday, between um, the third service Sunday and the last service Sunday night, I went out and mowed the lawn, pulled some weeds out in the yard. I love to do it because, uh, first of all, it's cathartic. It's cleansing for me to go out and just sweat things out and think things out. And I have a great sense of accomplishment when it's done. Look what I did. I actually mowed the lawn. I mean, it's not big, but it's like, woo! I pulled a weed. There is a sense of accomplishment when you work hard for something and you see the job well done. You build something. Look it, I built it. It feels good. We can never carry that feeling or that design over onto our relationship with God to merit salvation. We have underscored that probably ad nauseum for the last several weeks in the book of Romans, but I don't think we can ever underscore it enough. The Jews prayed three times a day, sometimes more. It was beautiful prayers, but they relied on their works, their prayers, their sacrifices, their rituals, To get them favor with God. Do you remember that old commercial. For Smith Barney. They make money the old fashioned way. They earn it. So a lot of people relate to God. They get to heaven the old fashioned way. They earn it. There's a lot of people who think. That's how you get to heaven. You don't. You don't. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus. You must be born again. To enter the kingdom of heaven. He said that to a very religious person. Jesus said to the harlot on the street, Neither do I condemn you. Go, sin no more. Jesus said to the man who was crippled that was brought down in the house in Capernaum, Your sins are forgiven. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, the religious person standing by would hear that little conversation between the thief and the Messiah and say, Excuse me, I know you're all in terrible suffering, but I've got to ask you a question. How can you promise this man salvation and forgiveness instantly when he hasn't done anything? Why don't you at least say, keep the Ten Commandments, and then you'll be in paradise. Or, if you get baptized, join a church. Do a few things that proves you're really a Christian. Then you'll be with me in paradise. At least say that. Well, there's an obvious answer to it. There was no time. The thief was impaled to the cross as was Jesus. He had no time to do any works. And second, God doesn't save anybody based on their works. We know that. It's all by grace. It's all through the avenue of our faith and trust in Christ. And that's what the thief on the cross did. Trusted Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever studied just the little phrase of the thief to Jesus. But it bears your own personal study sometime. In that little phrase, it reveals what he acknowledged. Lord, he said, not hey, dude, Lord. He recognized the lordship of Christ. Then he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He knew he was a king. He knew he was the Lord. He confessed that. He confessed that he was a king, that he had a kingdom. And he relied by saying, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He relied on him being able to do something for him because he couldn't do it for himself. That's a lot packed in a little statement. That was the reach of faith. And that's why Jesus said, hey. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Like that. That's salvation from God. That's the righteousness of God that the Jewish people have been ignorant of for so long. I heard about a boy that wanted to join a church. Cute little guy. But in this church, you had to appear before the deacons to join. So the deacon committee sat around in a semicircle. The little boy was brought in. And so they asked him the question Okay, you want to join our church? Are you saved? Yes, I am saved. How did you get saved? Little boy said, well, I got saved when God did his part and I did my part. The deacons kind of looked at each other and snickered and said, well, that's that's wonderful. But could you explain what God's part is and what your part is? He said, sure. God's part was the saving. My part was the sinning. And then he said, and I ran from God all my life as fast as my little rebellious legs could take me and God chased me and ran me down. That's how I got saved. Now, I don't know how you'd fit that theologically, but that's a good answer. He did the sinning. God did the saving. He admitted that he was a sinner. God chased him down, pursued him by his Spirit. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, somebody will inevitably ask, and we brought the question up even a lot in this study in Romans, Wait a minute, Skip. You're supposed to do good things, right? I mean, faith without works is dead. Right. But the point is this. You're not saved by doing good works. You do good works once you're saved. Once God saves you, He changes your heart, not from the outside in through rituals, but from the inside out through a relationship. When that happens, your heart is changed. You're a new creation. And you have a desire to, To do things because you love Him. You want to please Him. There's a relationship. You want to find out what He loves and do it. You want to find out what He hates and stay away from it. And therein lies the proof that a person is saved by his works. But you don't do works to get saved. You get saved by admitting you're a sinner. By calling out on Jesus Christ. You turn from sin. You turn to Him. And then you demonstrate that salvation by the works that you do. You know, salvation is like getting saved from drowning, in a sense. A person is drowning. He's about to go under and he ha- has his hand up and goes, Save me, please! Now, how ludicrous is it going to be for the guy on the shore to go, Well, now wait a minute. You've got to do some good works first. I'm dying. I'm going down. I can't do anything except cry out for you to save me. But I'll tell you something. Once that guy's pulled out of the water, he'll do anything. He's so grateful that he's saved. He'd say, hey man, can I like wash your car every day for the next ten years? Anything. I just want to show my appreciation. When you're saved by God, works will follow. And it is the demonstration, but it is not the method of getting saved. So, they have not submitted to the righteousness of God Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Mark that. Jesus Christ is the completion, the end of the law to everyone who believes. You'll remember Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount had all of his disciples and the crowds around him at the shores of Galilee. And he said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. And then he pressed it and he said, for I say to you, unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if there was ever a uh, statement that had shock value, that was it. Picture it. Common Jewish people who looked up to the rabbis, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious elite. They were the creme de la creme of religious activity. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness, there's no hope. You'll never make it to heaven. I think they were shocked, stunned. Because there was a saying around the Jews... The Jews used to say, if only two men will go to heaven, one will be a scribe, the other will be a Pharisee. That was their belief. The scribes were the people who recorded the scripture. They studied it, they read it, they copied it, they taught it. The Pharisees, by the word word Pharisee means the separated ones. There was only 6,000 of them at the time of Christ. They were so separate from the other sinners, the Gentiles, the people that have cooties, the sinners... That they would separate themselves, hold their robes close to their bodies, lest they become defiled by touching a Gentile. Ceremonial defilement. They they decided they would be so separate from the ways of the world and so holy unto God that that nobody could match them. Now, when Jesus said that, he's dealing with a very basic point here. We're, We're all dealing with the same point. The Jewish nation has been ignorant of the righteousness of God. They haven't submitted to God's righteousness. They try to manufacture their own. They're ignorant of that. This is the worst kind of ignorance. It's works-based righteousness rather than trusting in Jesus Christ. So the basic point is, how do you get to heaven? Do you do it by ritual? Do you do it by being very, very holy? If that's what it is, if it's by doing something, proving something, going through works to get to heaven then they would go away feeling totally defeated. And so will we. Nobody in this room has ever come close to matching the external righteousness of the Pharisees, not a one of us. But that's not what he meant. He was talking about a whole different kind of righteousness, the kind that Paul says the nation was ignorant of. Jesus said, those that are whole don't need a physician, only those who are sick. He said that to the Pharisees, who said, how come you're hanging around with sinners? Because they're sick. But those that think they're well, basically, is the idea. I don't need a doctor. You know, there's a lot of people that actually need to see doctors, but they're in denial. My father was one of these. He had conditions all his life, and my mom would say, You need to go to the doctor. I don't need a doctor. I'm fine. I'm fine. (coughs) Really? As he'd cough his way through life. And so the Pharisees, I don't need anything. I'm fine. I'm righteous. I'm good. They need to be as good as I am. A whole different kind of righteousness Jesus was speaking of. Now, I know we're only in verse 4, but that's all right. I'm going to divert just for a moment to Matthew chapter 23. You can turn to it if you want. I'm going to read four verses. These are the words of Jesus, and He's speaking here about how impossible it is to keep an external law as given by the religious rulers of the Jews, the Pharisees and the scribes. In verse 2, Jesus said, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. They're in the driver's seat. They're telling you what the law means. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move one of them with their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries. Those are the little boxes on their heads. They put boxes with scriptures in them. And they would make them bigger and bigger and bigger. The bigger you had them, the more noticeable they were. So people thought, you know, look at that big box on that guy's head. He has a lot of Bible in there. And he's more spiritual than the other Pharisees. And they would wrap them on their hand. And this was all to keep a commandment. Remember the commandment that you will bind the law on your hand and on your forehead. And so they literally bound Bible verses in a box around their heads and arms. It's still to this day. If you go to Jerusalem, you go to the Western Wall, you will see the men with boxes on their heads. Little ones. Some of them have bigger ones. But Jesus is saying, you know, they make their phylacteries bigger to be seen by men. And they enlarged the borders of their garments. The Apostle Peter called the law, the external law, that was handed down by the sages, a yoke, he called it, that neither we nor our fathers were ever able to bear. No one, he said, could keep. it. And so this causes some confusion to the disciples at one point. And, And they turn to Jesus and they say, okay. Jesus, uh, tell it to us straight. Who can be saved? Jesus' answer was another jaw-dropper. He said, with men, it's impossible. And they probably thought, (laughs) all right, great. I mean, you came from heaven to earth to tell us that. Nobody can be saved. It's impossible. Just then he said, but what's impossible with men is possible with God. Do you see the difference between works-based righteousness, impossible for men, versus imputed righteousness, given by God, freely by grace? It's possible with God. He'll give it to you. He'll declare you righteous. He'll justify you. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. So the righteousness then that God requires is the righteousness that God gives. You don't produce it. You receive it. It is imputed. I was reading um, this week about a ship that was discovered about a hundred years ago, a century ago. In the Arctic Ocean, it was um, uh, manned by a crew that was frozen to death. The captain was standing over his captain's log as if he was writing an entry in it. People were in hammocks, some others were in uh, different parts of the ship, but they were frozen to death. The entry in the ship showed that by the time they were found, they had been sailing, or floating around between the icebergs, 13 years. And the commentator in the article said, It was a drifting sepulcher manned by a frozen crew. And I read that, and I said, now there is a description of religion at the time of Jesus Christ, and a good description of much of religion today. It's a a sepulcher, manned by a frozen crew. No life, dead, all in position, but nothing really happening. There's a great story in the New Testament. It's a parable that Jesus gives. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, ultra-elite, very religious, very righteous, creme de la creme. The other was a tax collector. Now, if ever there were two people diametrically opposed to each other, it was a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee, of course, was seen as very, very spiritual. He was highly esteemed. The tax collector was very ill-esteemed, very hated, very non-righteous. But by the end of the parable, you remember the, the, the punchline, Jesus said that the tax collector went away justified. Why? Because he had penitent faith that brought God's righteousness. He said, Lord, as he beat his breast, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. While the Pharisee boasted in his own righteousness, works-based righteousness versus imputed. He said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I don't do this. I don't do that. And I really especially thank you that I'm not like that guy over there, that tax collector. We know he's a creep, Lord. And he started going in his prayer through a litany of his works. And Jesus said, he'll never be accepted. But the man who confessed his sin, he will be accepted. The Apostle Paul at one time trusted in his own righteousness. Remember when he gives his little pedigree in Philippians? He said, when it came to righteousness that comes by the law, I was, his word, perfect, blameless. I did it all. Externally, there wasn't anybody that I ever found holier than I was. And then he said something that would shock anybody that is interested in works-based righteousness. He said, all those things of my past that I thought were gain, I count them as refuse. Dung is the word. Refuse that I might find or be found in Christ. And being found in him, said Paul, not having, listen, not having my own righteousness which comes from the law, but the righteousness which comes by my faith in Jesus Christ. Once again, the great chasm, the great difference between works-based righteousness versus God's righteousness. That's what Paul said I was ignorant of. That's what Paul says the Jewish nation has been and is ignorant of even to this day. So. Christ is the end of the law to those of us who believe. I'm not under the law anymore. I say I because I don't know about all of you. Some of you, when I have conversations with you, I get the hunch that you are. You've been redeemed from the curse of the law, but you still want to live under it. Whether it means keeping the Sabbath or certain dietary regulations or whatever. I'm not under the law. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He lived the perfect life. Nobody else could ever do that. And then He died for my sins. Now, I think this. If the only righteousness that God will accept is the kind that He gives, and the kind that He gives is the perfect righteousness of His perfect Son who lived the perfect life, you can't do any better than that. For you to try to get to heaven by your own works is like saying to God... From his perspective, I can do better than that. I can do better than the righteousness that you give freely that only your son could ever do. I can do better than that. I can live more perfect than that. I can I'll make it. Well, he goes on further, verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, the man who does these things shall live by them. He's quoting Leviticus 18. You know, Paul knew the scripture and he quotes a lot of what he knew from his upbringing and he's basically saying okay if you say you live by the law you got to do it all you got to keep all of the law another passage in Deuteronomy which Paul doesn't quote here but he does quote in Galatians is this cursed is the man who does not confirm all the words of this law and Paul makes the point in Galatians if you say that you live by external good deeds, I'm going to keep the law and make it to heaven. If you blow it in one thing, you're guilty of breaking the law, doesn't matter which part. In other words, you and I can't choose which part of the law we like, which part we don't like. If you say you live by it, you better keep it all. Or or relate to God on a whole different level. Of course, it is impossible to do, is it not? It's impossible. To keep all of the regulations of the law. I challenge anyone here. Go through the Old Testament. And find me a person who has kept all of it. And there's only one. And that's Jesus. And that's the substitute that we're talking about. Let him fill in for you. Okay, Let him step in and be the substitute. See, there, there's there's two ways to deal with it. One, the way of the Pharisees, which is take God's standard and lower it to the level of just rituals and ceremonies and then pat yourself on the back when you go through all the rituals and ceremonies. That's lowering the standard. That's telling God, you're really not as holy as you say you are in the Bible, so I'm going to accommodate your righteousness down to my level. And I am holier than I really am. I think I am, so it puffs me up. That's, that's one way. The other way is you humble yourself and you let Jesus Christ be your substitute. Verse 6, But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will ascend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? Now he's quoting again the Old Testament. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. The word of faith here speaks of my trust in Jesus Christ. He's quoting the Old Testament. He's showing that even in the Old Testament, God never required just an external observance of the law. God was always interested in the internal, the heart, the trust, the faith. He said to the Jewish nation, circumcise your hearts, not just your flesh. Let the ritual be translated into the innermost part of your being. So the point here in his quote in verse 6, 7, and 8 is that salvation is not going to come by us going up into heaven. We don't need to. God came from heaven to earth. That's the incarnation. But works-based righteousness, religion, religious systems, that is works-based righteousness, always denies the importance of the incarnation that God had to come to earth to be a man. So we've got to go reach God somehow. We've got to go bring him down. The essential doctrine also that it denies is the resurrection, which is mentioned in the next part. Who will ascend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. We have a problem as mankind in general. The problem we have is we're stuck in a box. And the walls of this box we'll call time and space. We're in the time and space continuum. We're born with an emptiness inside, Paul the Apostle said, this gaping hole. And we have a hunch, an inborn hunch, everyone born, that there is the supernatural, there is God. And so somebody comes along and says... Okay, I've got to escape my box somehow. I've I've got to somehow transcend these walls of time and space and find God and bring Him down to my level. I'm going to ascend into heaven. I'm going to get God. And every time somebody comes up with that way of thinking, a new religion is born. Whether it's the new age where you attain to your higher self or your Christ consciousness, or you're a Buddhist that says work, act, and think your way into nirvana, or it's Hinduism that believes in the transmigration of the soul and absorption into Brahman. All of these are ways to get out of the box and bring the supernatural down to my level. That's very different from this other righteousness we're talking about. God's plan is this. You can't transcend your box, man. So my plan will be, I'll go from heaven to earth become one of you. Meet you on your level. Do what no man has ever done before. Gone where no one has ever gone before. Live the perfect life no one could ever live. Be the substitute in death and my atoning blood for their sins so that anybody who believes in me and trusts in that will be righteous with my Father. So, we can't transcend the box, but Jesus crawled into our box. When my son was very young, I would come home. I mean, he's a lot taller now. He's 13 already. But when he was just a toddler, I'd open the door. I'm home. And, and he'd you'd hear his little footsteps, pitter-patter. And he'd look up. And I just saw his neck just, you know, like it's going to break stretching way up there. Wow. It's my dad. And, and it dawned on me one day. I think, man, I must just... I remember how tall my mom looked to me as a kid. Now, my mom is about five foot one. And she looked like a giant when I was just a boy, a wee lad. And when my wee lad looked up to me and said, Daddy, that day, I thought, you know, I'm so distant to him. So I picked him up, brought him into his bedroom, crawled on the floor, and got about eye level. And he treated me differently. He jumped on me, wrestled me, grabbed me. Hey, man, Dad's on my turf, man. He's in my room. He's at my level now. I can conquer it. I can handle him. I can relate to him. And I noticed the relationship was different in the bedroom at his level than coming in through the door and thundering down from the heights. And that's the message of Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at different times and in different ways spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God thundered down his message through the prophets from heaven, has in these last days spoken to us by his own son. He crawled into the box. He became one of us. And so he could say, Philip, have you been so long a time with me and you don't know who I am? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father, the Incarnation. God has come in human flesh to be at our level. I was looking at this verse this week about who will ascend, who will descend. And I started thinking how far... People will go. What extent people will go to find God? So I started thinking, you know, how how far are you from righteousness? How close are you to righteousness? You're a prayer away. In Rome, I traveled to Rome a few years ago, there are a set of steps in Rome where people will make a bloody pilgrimage on their knees. They'll crawl. They'll on their knees they'll walk to this place, and up these steps. And you'll see bloodstains on the steps. You'll see their knees bloodied up because they think they're going to find favor with God by getting bloody. People will travel to Fatima and Majigori, the hill of apparition where Mary supposedly appeared and made great sacrifices to, to find the divine. In our state, there's an interesting group called the Penitentes, who will make their pilgrimage carrying the cross, which comes from the time of the conquistadors, and they take their crosses called descansos, and they'll go a long journey and put the cross up on this hill up in Dixon. Finding God. You don't have to go up into heaven. You don't have to go take a long pilgrimage. You don't have to crawl on your knees. You just have to trust in Jesus Christ. And that's why the works-based religious person does not like the gospel. It sounds too easy. I had an experience. When I first went to Israel, I mentioned I'd been a bunch of times. The first time I went, uh, I really expected that, hey, I'm going to the Holy Land, man. I'm going to have a surreal experience. And I remember going to a few places. One of them was the Garden of Gethsemane because I heard people say they went to the Garden of Gethsemane and they felt like the presence of God. It was so amazing. So I went there and I sat. And I thought, okay, this is it. And I sat down on a rock and... I was waiting for my lift. And I even tried to work myself into it. <sighs> Glory. And I was so disappointed. I heard donkeys crowing in the background. And little guys saying, you, mister, get out of here, get out of here. And then another kid saying, postcards, one dollar, a hundred postcards, one dollar. I'm thinking, this isn't the spiritual experience I thought it would be. I'm very disappointed. And I tried another couple spots in Jerusalem, the garden tomb, a few, and, and, and others have gone there and felt those. I didn't. I expected to, but I didn't. One evening, after I had returned home and I lived in a little apartment in Santa Ana, it was a beat up apartment, a lot of cockroaches, the last place you'd ever think God would make himself known. I was sitting one night with my Bible open on my couch. And I was just reading and praying and I felt an incredible presence of God. And the Lord was showing me, you don't have to go to the Holy Land. Because there really isn't a Holy Land. There's a holy Lord who dwells in holy people. And it doesn't matter where you are. It's that word of faith. It's that trust in Him. It's the relationship you have. You don't have to ascend or descend or go anywhere. It's a wonderful truth. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Notice those two words, righteousness and salvation, in those verses. They describe the negative and the positive aspects of your redemption. Righteousness has to do with what we become. Salvation has to do with what we've escaped. We've been saved from something. We become righteous because of God's work. Righteousness has to do with entering into the blessedness Salvation has to do with escaping the cursedness. Or you might look at it this way. Righteousness has to do with eternal life that we don't deserve, but we receive. Whereas salvation has to do with eternal punishment, which we do deserve, but we don't go through. We've been saved. That's the negative. Pulled out from the pit and given righteousness. Notice, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus... That means you have to acknowledge Jesus as the Lord, the Greek word kurios, master, absolute sovereign. It is related, that Greek word kurios, to a Hebrew word, Adonai. If you took a translation of the Old Testament of Septuagint and compared, it would be equivalent to Adonai, which is Lord or sometimes even translated God. It is essential that you confess Jesus Christ as the Lord. He's God in human flesh. That is essential to salvation. Now, please notice, if you believe. It didn't say, if you believe, period. It's if you believe the Lord Jesus. I I can't underline enough the fact that God never exalts faith in faith or faith for the sake of faith. Somebody will look at a person who believes in something other than Christ. Oh, a person is a person of great faith. But the Bible makes it clear that faith is only as good as the object in which the faith is placed. If I believe with all my heart that the banana that I have on my plate will save me, and I put all my faith in that banana you would truly say, and you could truly say, he's a man of great faith. He carries the banana wherever he goes. Look at him. He's got a banana on his shoulder. But he really believes it. You might say, well, he's a little nuts. He's deluded. He believes in the great banana. But he believes it. he is spiritual. He is religious. But the fact of the matter is, the banana has no power. It's a delusion. Faith is only as good as the object in which the faith is placed. The Bible exalts... The objective faith placed in the one revealed from heaven who came to earth, the Son of God, who paid for our sins on the cross, Jesus Christ. And by the way, the word faith in the Bible, most of us know by now, means a deep reliance, a trust, more than an acknowledgement. We, in our English language, will say, yeah, I believe in God. Oh, really? What does that mean to you? Well, what it means to some people is that I believe God exists. He's out there somewhere. I believe in a God. The Bible would call it a trust or a surrender in. The Apostle James lets us know that the devils, the demons, are absolutely orthodox in their theology. Did you know that? They know all of the right things about God. They are more orthodox than than a lot of people. James says this, You believe there is one God, you do well. Or you could say, wow. But even the devils believe and they tremble. You believe in one God? Demons are monotheistic. They believe in one God. They're creationists. Confirmed creationists. They were there when God created the heavens and the earth. Not only that, but they know what heaven's like. They were kicked out of it, the Bible says. They saw it with their own eyes. They felt it. They experienced it. And they were taken out of heaven. And they also know the coming judgment because they shudder in their faith. They tremble, the Bible says. So you can know all of these things and be unsaved. You can have the orthodox belief. I believe in one God. I believe in creation. I believe there's a judgment coming. But the faith the Bible talks about is that total commitment and trust. It's something real in your own life. Jesus described it as being born again. And it accompanies repentance. So, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart. Believe in your heart. Remember, to the Hebrew, the heart was the core of the being. It was all that a person was inside. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. The heart of the gospel, the resurrection. You need to believe in the resurrection to be saved. No resurrection, no salvation. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is not risen, our preaching is empty. Your faith is also empty. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Now, why do we need to believe the resurrection? Because the resurrection is the supreme validation of the ministry of Christ. It proves he was victorious over sin, death, and Satan. No resurrection, no salvation. You believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. I like that. Another way of looking at that, whoever believes in him will never experience disappointment in expectations. Will never be put to shame. Let me apply that. You will never regret Trusting Jesus Christ completely. You know, I've never met a man or a woman on his or her deathbed who has said, Man, I have only one regret. I've trusted Jesus too much. I've prayed too much, man. I've thought more about heaven and witnessed more people and lived a godly life. I did it too much. I was a fanatic. I've never, ever had that happen. But I've certainly heard a lot of the opposite. Boy, this life is so short. I should have trusted him more. I should have committed my life to God more. And I'll tell you what, at death it does really count. I've watched a lot of people pass from this life into the next. What a difference it makes. You'll never regret tr- trusting Christ. By the way, as an aside, have you noticed in this chapter how much Paul is able to quote Scripture? Of course, he studied it. He was a rabbi. But you know, we study it too. And it's great to know where these basic principles are, to pull them out and to have a firm foundation, to have the knowledge to not live, as Paul said, in in ignorance. For there is no distinction. Ooh, we're coming to the end. What do you know? Between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let those verses ring in your heart as you go. Because chapter 8 and 9, Paul raises the flag of the sovereignty of God, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. You're elect. God picked you. All the responsibility is on His sovereignty. Now we see the other side of the coin. Whoever calls upon Him shall be saved. Now this is the responsibility of mankind. Have you called on the Lord? Have you made a definite commitment of your life to trust Him? It doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen irresistibly. Where you're drawn by irresistible grace and you have no volition at all. You must make a choice. Who is salvation offered to? Notice the word, whoever. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him. I like that. God isn't, isn't picky. He'll take anybody. He'll, what that means is He'll never close the door to anybody who sincerely is seeking after Him, who wants to know Him, who wants to have their sins forgiven. Whoever will call Him the Lord shall be saved. In fact, have you noticed how often Jesus picked what the world would call losers? To be his winners. Mary Magdalene. A loser to the Pharisees. To the Pharisees. To the scribes. To the elite. And to society in general. This loose, immoral woman. She hung around Jesus and found supreme worth in that. Thief on the cross. Loser. Let him die. Today you'll be with me in paradise. God picks these people. And I'm so glad. Because he picked me. God has chosen the foolish things to confound the wise. I've noticed that this world has its fill of exclusive places. That is, not everybody can come to these places. You have to be a member. Country club, you have to join, pay the fee, dress right, act right. Exclusive, not everybody can get in. Universities, not everybody can come in. You can't get into just say, I want to go to this school. No, you have to show your transcripts and it has to be approved and grade point average, etc. And some of them are very elite. Then there's God's kingdom. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, will place their trust, will be saved. Listen, it's it's a lot harder to get in most Christian universities than it is to get in heaven. That's just a fact. That's not a slam. You don't have to prove anything to get into heaven. You just have to trust Jesus Christ implicitly, not your own works, but a, but His finished work on the cross. And therein lies the great chasm, the great difference between religion versus the gospel. Religion emphasizes the outward. The gospel emphasizes the inward. Religion puts up barriers and walls. The gospel breaks them all down. The gospel is a great bulldozer. And says, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and whoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Gospel breaks barriers. Religion says, work your way. The gospel says, here is Jesus who said, I am the way. If you have him, you have it all. You don't need anything else but Jesus Christ.